is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Would you give up a really nice, cushy office job to fill potholes all day? Well, you know, lots of people in China are making that switch. And we will go in-depth into whether it is happening here in America, too. Is Hollywood thinking about going overseas for more words and more content? Also, we'll talk to a former Olympic athlete about her exclusive claims, explosive, I should say, claims of doping and emotional and sexual abuse within an elite Nike-run training camp. So would you give up what you're doing now, Rob, to do, uh, I don't know, uh, something more like manual labor? Honestly, no, because I have dedicated my life to doing as little physical labor as possible. Ah, that's Hence my career in radio. You know, as a kid, a friend of mine's dad owned a ice cream place, and I used to, you know, do ice yeah, cream. Yeah. You know, and I always kind of liked that. I think I would like to do that again because it's something physical, and you're moving. And no, because you get to eat free ice cream. Well, there, I didn't think of that. <laughs> we start though with uh, ditching the mouse for the hard hat, and why workers leave the office for blue collar or service jobs. Joe Mole is author of Employalty, How to Ignite Commitment and Keep Top Talent in the New Age of Work. Joe, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me today. So I mentioned at the very top that, that uh, apparently young people in China are giving up these lucrative jobs in, in white-collar industries, and they're doing things, everything from, you know, digging ditches to uh, working in pet shops. Is this something that, that is going to happen, or is it happening here in America? It is happening to an extent. So the the cultural circumstances of what's happening over there are a little bit different, but what they're chasing over there is still what a lot of folks here are chasing when it comes to changing jobs, and that is better quality of life. What's different about what's happening here right now, though, is that it's not limited to people just leaving white-collar jobs, for example, to go to retail or labor positions. We are seeing that in some cases when people are in those white-collar jobs and they're saying, this environment is too toxic, or I'm just so burned out that I want to go do something less taxing. We're actually seeing it go the other way as well. We are seeing folks in those retail environments or in those labor environments who are saying, you know, I've spent a lot of years earning low wages and crappy benefits and unpleasant hours. I'm actually going to try to move into something that's a little bit more white collar so that I can have a better quality of life. So it is happening. We're seeing a lot of record switching, but it goes both ways. This kind of thing has happened here before, though, because I'm I'm thinking back to the 1960s, the tune in drop out generation uh, basically looked at the future they saw of their very staid white collar office job, nine to five, working behind a desk all day long. And they looked at that and said, that's not for me. I want to do something more with my life because my my intellectual and, and spiritual horizons have been widened. Is that is there the same kind of spirit happening here with this? Well, we certainly do see cycles, right, as you go back over history. And the cycle that we're in right now is being mislabeled as the great resignation. And people think this just started since COVID arrived. But we've actually seen every year since 2009, about 2 million more Americans have voluntarily left their jobs than the year before. And the number of people who have done that since 2009 here in the U.S. has more than doubled. And what we're seeing is that people are 
saying, I'm looking for, in one way or another, an upgrade to my quality of life. If you ask someone who's changed jobs why they change jobs, some people will say, I need a better salary or a better commute or more fulfilling work or a better boss. It all rolls up to this big idea that I'm recalibrating the role that work fits into my life, and I want to pursue something that's a better fit for that life. When the pandemic arrived, it just took an already exhausted workforce and broke it because prior to the pandemic, burnout was at an all-time high in the U.S. workforce. We were working more hours a week and getting fewer vacation days a year than nearly every other developed nation on earth. So we are in one of those cycles right now where people are looking around at their lives and saying, I think I can do better. We do have a, a problem in America, a class problem, and by that I mean we refuse to recognize that we do think in terms of class. Other countries have no problems doing that. We do, and we do tend to uh, look down on certain occupations as being beneath us uh, because it's just not appropriate for our station in life, whatever the heck that means. Does mm -hmm. that make it difficult for people who might be better off, who might be happier and still might make maybe even more money making a transition to a different type of job because of that sort of hidden concern. I think there's some truth to that. You know, I, I remember my parents used to tell me growing up that, you know, some of the happiest people in the world come home every night stinking to high hell. And I know that that when you look and ask people what the reasons are for them wanting to potentially leave an employer or stay long term, it isn't always just about the money. We know it's about fulfillment. Am I getting to do work that I find valuable or purposeful? Am I part of the team where I experience belonging? Do I get to do work that unleashes my creativity? But when people discover that we're not checking those boxes on this kind of internal psychological scorecard that we all have, and we decide we want to try our hand at something different, it can be a challenge to do a complete career 180. What you're really hoping for is an HR professional or an organizational who sees those kinds of transferable skills and experience and giving people an opportunity to try their hand at something different. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Joe Mole, author of Employalty, How to Ignite Commitment and Keep Top Talent in the New Age of Work. And you know, Charles, you asked me at the beginning, would I be willing to give up this job yeah. for something, something manual. Else. It's kind of because it made me think it's yeah. kind of interesting. It's the reason I am in radio, because I had that choice. Uh -huh. uh, my dad, once upon a time, may the gods rest his soul, uh, woke me up from my afternoon nap and said, hey, you're old enough to start paying rent now, so you need to get, go get a job. Mm -hmm. So I had two jobs lined up. I had uh, one job uh, working in the stock room, moving boxes around the local drugstore. Yeah. And the other, a friend of mine uh, tuned me into a job at a local radio station, country music radio station. And that's how you got? And so I, I decided, do I want to move boxes around and do manual labor or sit in a room and play country music records all day long? So I, I chose radio and I just I stayed with it. That's why I'm here. And, and as I said at the beginning, you know, I kind of liked the ice cream business. The other thing I always thought would be a really cool job, mm -hmm. designing doorknobs. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's <laughs> ever thought of that before, but, you know, I'm willing to give it a shot. You need them. Hollywood writers are voting for the next several days on whether to authorize a strike if their union and the studios cannot reach a new labor deal. A strike, by the way, could cripple domestic production here. But what about overseas? Gene Mattis is an enterprise reporter at Variety. Gene, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. 
So uh, I know certainly during, I think it was the, uh, well, during the pandemic, of course, uh, there was a dramatic shift, as you know, with uh, uh, reality television. And that actually also happened previous to the pandemic, did it not, with the previous strike. Um, So is this one, if there is one, would this lead, do you think, to more programming, of which there's already a lot, from overseas? Yeah, I mean... So we should say, I mean, there's it's May 1st is the deadline and it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion that there will be a strike. And I think everybody hopes there won't be. But there's definitely contingency planning underway if there is one. And if you were a major Hollywood studio, you'd be dumb not to be planning now for what happens when we're not able to produce TV shows domestically. And so, yeah, they they certainly can still produce stuff overseas. Uh, The WGA does not have jurisdiction outside the United States. And so that's part of the plan, I'm sure, is to to rely more heavily than, as you mentioned, they already do quite a lot of uh, imports. But, um, you know, that that would certainly be something that they could turn to if if we are in a strike. Right. I was going to say that, you know, in this age of streaming and the endless need for more content, uh, there already seems to be a lot of stuff coming in from from overseas, because if you if you browse Netflix, you see a lot of uh, dramas based in Asia, dramas based elsewhere uh, that have been repurposed for an American audience. They add subtitles and what have you. But there also is something different. Speaking of streaming this time than there was in the last strike, there's a lot more content left over to watch. I'm I'm going back and catching up with a show that I like, Blacklist, because I'm I'm three seasons behind. So I got yeah. that to watch. So if there's a writer strike, I'm not watching new episodes, so that wouldn't affect me. So there's still that. There's a library of content that we didn't have before, right? That's true. And when you think about a strike as sort of a siege, you know, you're sort of trying to deny your opponent uh, the resources to keep going. Um, that that is a problem if if they have this sort of endless. Uh, library. Now, the the thing to to complicate that is, yes, there's thousands of things on there, but the new stuff is what people watch, right? Like, they're not generally going back and watching movies from the 50s. They're watching stuff that came out last week. Um, So it it certainly, I mean, I don't think anybody at the studios wants there to be a strike. I don't think they're looking forward to this, you know, as, oh, oh, glad, I'm I'm so glad we're going to have a strike. Um, you know, that, that, that is definitely a problem for them. But yeah, as you say, there, there is a lot of stuff that you could watch without new, new content. You know, there are people who are not involved in the Hollywood community who I'm sure think, uh, you know, what are writers complaining about? Don't they all make a, a bundle? I mean, everybody in Hollywood, directors, producers, actors, cinematographers, writers, they're all, you know, raking it in. What more do they need? What more do they want? Is that perception at all accurate? Well, I mean, like, you know, it, it depends on what you're comparing it to. Like, um, obviously, the stuff they create is very valuable, right? Like, they, they make the point, like, studios are extremely profitable. And the entertainment is extremely valuable stuff. Uh, the, the skills they have are very specialized and rare, and they are at the top of their game. And they deserve to be compensated for that. I mean, I, it's not that different from professional athletes. And you could say, you know, does... Uh, LeBron James deserved to make what he makes, but obviously, you know, he's very talented. So I think uh, a lot of people also ask, do uh, Charles and I deserve to make what we make? <laughs> <laughs> and not without some validity. Uh, thank Are you. you. Say I, after? Is that, uh... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, right, should, you should see the smirks on our faces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gene Mattis, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Enterprise Reporter at Variety. Coming up, by the way, uh, you won't want to miss our interview with a former Olympic marathon runner. 
about the very dark side of elite athletics and what she says her coach did to her. Right now, though, former President Trump sat down with Fox News' Tucker Carlson for what turned out to be an interesting interview, uh, to put it mildly. With us now is Peter Loge from George Washington University's School, uh, School of Media and Public Affairs. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Many thanks for having me. Uh, glad to be with you. So just right off the top of the bat, uh, I, I'm assuming you saw the interview. What did you make of it? It was it was something else. Um, wide ranging is is one way to put it. Um, <laughs> wide ranging. Everybody, is, I guess. Yeah, I it, that's very charitable know. of you. <laughs> but, but, you know, the, the interesting thing is that as part of this interview, of course, with Tucker Carlson, he says that, you know, even if he's convicted, if he's uh, put on trial and convicted, he would still run. And if he wa- and if he won, which I'm sure he thinks he would, no matter what, uh, the presidency again, he would serve. And of course, constitutionally, apparently he could do that, which is really kind of interesting. You know, he, he would join California's own socialist, Eugene Debs, in that regard, who, of course, ran for president, I think, in 1920, having been jailed for opposing World War One. So it's not unprecedented. It, uh, I would not be the first one to predict that Donald Trump would follow a socialist's footsteps. But, you know, these are surprising times. And, uh, and politicians across the country have run for office and held office while being indicted or recently indicted or impeached. Uh, in Virginia, there's a state legislator recently who was reelected while wearing wearing an ankle bracelet because he was caught in an inappropriate affair with a minor. Um, any of your listeners who are originally from Providence, Rhode Island, have memories, some fond, so maybe not a buddy Cianci. So, you know, it's not without precedent nationally, and it's not even without precedent in the U.S., but it is certainly certainly quite a thing. Uh, what did you make of the part of the interview that seemed to have caught fire on social media? That got it kind of went viral, uh, where he was explaining how it was uh, the day he was arraigned, and he said that there were very tough, tough uh, court people there. You know, he always likes to describe people as tough, and then having tears in their eyes when speaking to him uh, and and apologizing that he is being arraigned. Does that fit into the mold of his other similar stories, where he tells stories of big? Uh, tough military guys with tears in their eyes saying, sir, sir. It is. It is. It absolutely. He's the hero of his own story, right? He he sets himself up as, as this martyr rushing in and we're all sort of fawning at his feet. Um, and there are people who, who may believe that. Um, there, there are certainly people who believe that about any candidate. I've worked on a lot of campaigns, several in the Los Angeles area in Southern California, and, and every candidate attracts a handful of true believers and uh, but, you know, come on, um, courtroom people are courtroom people. They're, you're not crying because a president was elected. But the, the what actually happens and the story that, that Trump's tell that, that Trump tells about him himself and his voters in the country aren't aren't necessarily connected. Right. Uh, this is sort of true in political storytelling in general. The story has to feel true, has to feel true enough. Supporters have to see themselves as heroes in the story. Then the story carries us along. This has been the case in American politics almost from the start. Trump just unsurprisingly takes it to an extreme. Hey, Peter, uh, let me ask you quickly, because we were in the last segment, we were having some fun with our listeners because we did a, a segment on people in this country that are changing their jobs. Uh, in China, for example, a lot of young people are leaving very uh, lucrative 
what we would define as white-collar jobs for things like, you know, digging ditches. And in this country, we're told, it's kind of both ways. Some people are, are trying to go to different kinds of more, um, you know, classy, what they consider classy mm-hmm. jobs and other people. The life that could have been. Yeah, the life yeah. that could have been. So I am curious. So if you had your druthers, what would you do if you couldn't or maybe there is something you would rather do than what you're doing now? What would that be? I would, I would rather be doing nothing else than talking to the fine folks at K&X. And yeah. Oh, wow. 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 That's Excellent. Wow. Well done, sir. Well done. Yes. Thanks well all. Done. I got to go. Thanks. <laughs> I, uh, all right. Thank I you. I that segment, and I thought it was great. And I was thinking I need to come up with clever lines about, about Trump and American politics. And all I could think of was, what do I really want to be doing? And in my dream world, I'd be an outside back in the U.S. men's national soccer team. Um, wow. I'd love to play for my hometown club of D.C. United, but really it would probably have to be Arsenal. Wow. But there's there's no universe in which that is is possible. You have to like the multiverse would have to be true and really generous. There you go. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Peter Loge from uh, George Washington University's School of Media and Public Affairs. You're listening to KNX in depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Competing in the Olympics and professional sports is a dream for every child and teenage athlete. Kara Goucher, no different, except that she actually got to live that dream. Yeah, she competed in the 2008 and 2012 Olympics and had a very successful marathon running career. But it came at a steep price, which she explains in her new book, The Longest Race Inside the Secret World of Abuse, Doping and Deception, a Nike's elite running team. Kara, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, that's a very explosive title, and I'm sure that you chose it with reason. So explain briefly to our listeners why that title. You know, it's really this story. It's a memoir, but it talks about, you know, like you said, the height of making it to the Olympic Games, but also the price I had to pay to get there. Being on a team with unethical practices, um, having to sort of go through emotional and physical abuse while I was there. And so, uh, and, and watching anti-doping rules violated. So that's where that part of the title comes in. All right, let's uh, let's dig into the anti-doping uh, uh, rules being violated, first of all. What did you see and how much can you tell us about it? Uh, well, I testified about a lot, but but essentially my former coach, Alberto Salazar, was found that he had failed for anti-doping rule violations. So he was given a four-year ban. But what I saw were people uh, faking illness to get... Uh, IV infusions, um, questionable behavior around testosterone gel that we had around us, uh, prescription drugs that athletes didn't need or have a prescription for being given to aid performance. And so it wasn't hardcore blood doping things that I saw. It was more uh, more medical, medical type anti-doping violations. When you went into this, the Olympics, uh, and you were training for it, I, I, obviously you didn't think that this was the sort of thing that would happen or that would happen to you. How disillusioned did it make you? Pretty disillusioned. I mean, I, I dreamt of being an Olympian since I was a young child. Uh, and I did I did go to two Olympic Games. Certainly the first Olympic Games, I was with this Nike Organ Project. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be amazing. I thought everyone had a fair shot. Um, and, yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't what I dreamt it was going to be. And uh, that obviously disillusioned you a bit. Is there a warning that you want to give to uh, young people uh, how to protect themselves if they want to follow this dream? Because, you know, I I don't imagine that you want to keep somebody from following an Olympic dream, but you do want to warn people to be careful. What would you say? 
I would say, you know, you can do it clean. I did it clean. Um, but anyone that's trying to pressure you into something or makes you uncomfortable, there are there are hotlines with USADA that are completely private um, that you can call in and get uh, advice or if you need to talk to someone, you know, you should never have to compromise your integrity to make it as an athlete. And I think it's really important that young kids or up and coming generation know that you can always keep your integrity in place. And if the group around you is trying to make you compromise that, there are avenues to get out of that. Calling USADA, calling Safe Sport, um, talking to other people that can help you get out of that situation. And just a quick editorial note, we did reach out uh, to both Nike and Alberto Salazar for comment. They have not responded to us uh, as of now. However, Salazar denied the sexual assault allegations in uh, previous statements to media outlets. Nike has denied in the past that Salazar engaged in doping and has said not, and I'm quoting now, uh, a single Oregon Project athlete was found to have violated the rules. Carrie, what do you make of that? Well, that is true. There's not a single Nike Oregon Project athlete that has had a positive test, a positive drug test. However, you know, in the hearings and um, during the, these hearings, uh, there there were rules that were broken. And, you know, Nike is continuing to say that nothing happened, yet this coach was banned for four years for four anti-doping violations. And let's dig into some of the more difficult aspects of uh, some of the things you say happened to you. Can you uh, tell us about some of those uh, and and again, as a way of warning to any young athletes that want to uh, do what you have done and live out that Olympic dream. Yeah, you know, I, I was in a situation where I trusted my coach completely and the power dynamic was very, it was uneven. And I couldn't see it at the time because he was the gatekeeper to everything that I wanted to accomplish. Um, but as I got closer to him and started running better, I started to spend more time alone with him. And, you know, it started with um, really inappropriate talk, sexual talk, things like that. That was just inappropriate, but I couldn't see it because I just excused it away. Um, eventually, there were two massages in which um, his hands went where they shouldn't, where he was giving me a massage. And so that's why, how he received his lifetime ban. And, you know, I just want people to know, you know, this happened to me. I was sexually assaulted twice. And I was a woman. I was in my 30s. I was married. And I carried a lot of shame with that for a long time. But my message is that you didn't do anything wrong and you can survive it. I am not damaged by what happened to me. I am moving on and I'm living a very fulfilled life. Am I right when you were in the process of, I guess it was auditioning uh, co-writers, right, for your book, that uh, at least one or maybe two of them or more uh, suggested to you that they've kind of heard it all and what was new about what you wanted to tell. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Most people said your story's been told. We've heard about the Oregon Project for years. Like, good luck, but there's nothing more there. So what convinced the writer you ended up using to take this on? I think opening up, letting her see my journals, talking about what happened behind the scenes. You know, I had never talked about the the culture there. I had never talked about being sexually assaulted there. Um, the culture was so, I mean, everyone loves to use the word toxic, but I do think it fits well here. And, you know, we really hadn't ever talked about that. And the way that the brand supported this group, you know, you were dispensable. Obviously, Nike is not. And so the power play that happened, none of that had ever really been discussed. And there was a lot of stories that I just had never told, but that I can back up with um, either logbooks or fellow teammates. And so there was a lot that just hadn't been shared yet. I think, you know, the media had heard that he had been banned. They heard why he had been banned. They thought they had heard 
heard it all. Uh, but there was much more to what happened and much more to the story. Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, journey that you took from uh, discovering that what had happened to you was wrong and how you healed from that? Yeah, I mean, I have to be honest, when I told the investigators uh, what had happened to me and they told me it was sexual assault, I was stunned. I, I imagined that sexual assault was very violent um, and it really shook me up and it, it really affected my life tremendously. And I had to I had to go to therapy and I had to really work through what that was. You know, as an athlete, you learn to compartmentalize, you push away pain, you push away even emotions, you push away wants and needs sometimes even because you're so focused on your goal. And I had really compartmentalized that and pushed it aside. And when that box sort of opened, I really had to deal with um, some pretty heavy stuff that I had never dealt with before. If you had to do it again, Kara, what would you have done differently? The very first incident when we were alone together in Italy, I would have gone to an authority figure. Um, you know, I was I was afraid. I was the only female on the team at that time. I was traveling alone with my coach. But if I could go back in time, I would have told someone right away. I think the more time that passed, I was embarrassed. I felt like I let it happen. And so my advice is speak up, speak up right away. And um, there are people who will believe you and who will be there for you. You know, you mentioned uh, a little while ago some of the organizations that somebody can reach out to. And it's not just for Olympic athletes because this, this sadly happens in all kinds of situations and not only sports, but in the world of sports, uh, young athletes who are taken advantage of. Uh, tell us again who they can reach out to. Um, well, Safe Sport is an organization that um, mainly deals with the most elite of athletes. And so every high school high school states, they have different organizations. Of course, there's the National Rain Hotline where you can call, but I think it's important for people to feel empowered to be able to tell, you know, to report anything they've seen, or even if you hear teammates talking about something, it's important to report these things to the authorities because sometimes an athlete will even tell you that they don't care or that they wanted it, but they don't understand the uh, power dynamic that they're under. Uh, Kara, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Kara Goucher, uh, a new book called The Longest Race Inside the Secret World of Abuse, Doping, and Deception on Nike's Elite Running Team. Well, that's going to do it for uh, KNX In-Depth for today. Uh, my good friend uh, Charles Feldman, they're still uh, riding his uh, knee scooter oh, yes. uh, for the work that's going to be done on his foot. Now, I understand you're going to be here for the rest of the week, right? Yes. But then you're having some uh, very extensive $6 million man-type bionic <laughs> surgery done on your foot. Yes, that's so right. So that you can run 60 miles an hour on the one foot. That's about right. Right. Yes, you're absolutely accurate. And 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 then you're you're going to be maybe uh, out of the studio for a little while, a couple of weeks. Right. I'll be I'll be on a cruise uh, to uh, Tahiti. No, right. <laughs> <laughs> I figured it was something like that. Yeah, but I, uh, I had to come up with a good story for right. why I'm going to be away. Yeah. I mean, you know. Uh, but in the meantime, we're all enjoying the scooter, and I, I think the next edition you should make to your scooter. Yesterday we said you got to put a basket on there. Yes. Today uh, we're advising that you put a backup alert on it. Well, you know, I, I think I told you yeah. I, I, in Beverly Hills when people have said, oh, what is that? I go, it's a new Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> They're really slimming down. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll do another KDX in depth tomorrow at 1 p.m.